it's a great uh, pleasure to get this started. We have um, normally run dozens of programs each year, bringing in uh, uh, high-ranking public officials, senators, governors, so forth, as well as policy experts and the keenest minds in the country in terms of observing politics and public policy. And we're delighted to be continuing that programming, though we'll be doing it online. I'm Larry Jacobs. I'm a faculty at the University of Minnesota. Um, I'm director of the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance. Um, and I am talking to you today from St. Paul, Minnesota, where I am in um, um, uh, isolation as we all are. Um, I am, uh, wanna let you know a couple things. One is this is being recorded. It'll be available later. Uh, we also, as is our tradition, um, are eager to get your questions and participation. And you can see on this slide, at the bottom, there's a Q&A feature of your, the bottom of your screen. Um, and click on it, give us your questions. We're gonna get to as many as possible. Uh, please join the conversation. This is an important part of it. Um, we're gonna be having a number of programs coming up. I'm delighted uh, that we'll be having on Monday a terrific program on Northern Ireland and Ireland. Um, obviously, uh, tensions have uh, increased there since Brexit. Now with uh, the coronavirus, uh, things have intensified. We have one of the, really the, the world's experts on Irish politics, Desmond King from Oxford joining us. He'll be interviewed by Ewan Kerr, who was a reporter at BBC for, for some time and is now a reporter at Minnesota Public Radio. Please join us for that. Uh, we are in the process of scheduling a number of other programs. Um, some of them are not finalized yet, but I'll, I'll give you a peek. Uh, one possibility is Senator Klobuchar uh, may join us to talk about the campaign, uh, coronavirus, um, her husband, um, uh, who, as some of you may know, uh, contracted um, the coronavirus. Uh, we're also working on uh, scheduling a terrific program on politics, presidential politics, um, congressional politics, with Vin Weber, a uh, well-known, highly respected Republican um, strategist, uh, and Anna Greenberg, who uh, is also well-respected, widely respected and admired, on the Democratic side, I know both of them. I think they're terrific people, and I'm excited about that. We've also working on programs on healthcare uh, and public health, and and many others. So please stay tuned. We, if you like this, you'll like what we have coming up. Um, now, let me move to today's program, which I'm very excited about. Uh, Norm Ornstein has been a friend for some number of years. If you were to ask for uh, the Sage of Washington D.C. Norm Ornstein would be at the top, or near the top of anyone's list, Democrat, Republican, academic, non-academic. Uh, he has been someone who has conducted tremendous research on what is going on in Washington. Uh, he has a, a you know, tremendous academic background and is applying it in the real world. He's also one of the rare researchers who is enormously influential within the political circles in Washington. And if you're interested in big reforms on campaign finance and other topics, you usually find Norm Ornstein as the driver of it. He is 
a real powerhouse, and I'm just very honored uh, to have him here. Um, he has been very candid in his analysis. Uh, two of his recent books, uh, one was Broken Branch, and then the other, uh, It's Even Worse Than It Was, are about the breakdown in Congress, its dysfunctional um, uh, characteristics, and why that has happened. It's a, a very candid book, and um, I'm sure we'll get into a conversation about that. So without further ado, I want to first welcome Norm Ornstein. Thank you so much for joining us, Norm. It's terrific to be with you, Larry, even if I'm not there in my native Minnesota. That's another very important feature. Norm is um, someone who was born, raised, and partially educated here. Um, and he is part of the famous uh, circle of Minnesotans uh, who have gone on and done well. Um, it's a very long list, actually, isn't it? Yeah. Did you know the Cohen brothers? Were they part of your? No, you know, they were uh, much younger. Um, but one of my fantasies after uh, uh, Fritz Mondale uh, did an introduction of Tom Friedman, um, which ended up being uh, in the uh, Star Tribune, pointing out that Al Franken, Tom Friedman, the Cohen brothers, and I all had uh, lived just a few blocks from one another in St. Louis Park. My fantasy was that the Cone Brothers would do a movie with all of us in it, and I could be the next Steve Buscemi. Uh, so far, it hasn't happened. And uh, if either or both of the Cone Brothers are listening, uh, please, uh, we're still waiting. Can I share your contact information with them? You may. You may, okay. definitely. One of the things that is a real uh, treat when uh, Norm Ornstein has visited us in uh, in Minnesota is he'll start off with a riff on what's going on in politics. I don't think I've ever seen anything as funny about American politics as what, what you do. It's really, it's painfully <laughs> funny. Um, but we're not gonna put you on the spot no. for that. And these, these are troubling not times. Yes. So I'm gonna start with one of the big themes that comes out of uh, a lot of your commentary and your research, which has been uh, the dysfunctionalism in Congress. And, you know, kind of looking at what's happened over the last month, it's quite striking. We've had three uh, significant, in some cases, unprecedented responses by Congress uh, to the coronavirus, both in terms of uh, bolstering the healthcare system, but also in terms of providing at least the first part of an economic um, uh, uh, support and safety net for the, uh, the disaster that's befalling so many Americans. How does this story of action in the face of uh, tragedy and disaster fit with your story of dysfunction? Is it an exception? Yeah, it is an exception, Larry. And I think, um, you know, the blunt reality here is we're seeing this exception, this bipartisan action, this willingness on the part of Republicans to expend incredible sums of money uh, from the public purse, uh, going much deeper into debt, uh, because there's a Republican president. And here's the contrast. We were flat on our backs in our economy in the uh, beginning of uh, 2009 after the financial collapse at the end of 2008. And remember, ultimately we saw this broad bipartisan action when George W. Bush 
was president towards the end with the bailout, the trouble assets relief program. It uh, remains unpopular, but the fact is for all of its flaws, it kept us from going into a depression and it paid for itself. Uh, then Barack Obama became president. And what was evident to every economist and social scientist and a whole host of others at the time was, we need a stimulus, a big one, to, because uh, otherwise we're gonna go further and further into the abyss. And in the end, uh, the Republicans provided zero votes in the House and three votes in the Senate uh, to just get over that filibuster hurdle for a diluted package and one that was changed by those three Republicans to make it less effective. And then they did everything they could to undermine uh, the uh, reality of what was done. Uh, just ask yourself the question, if Hillary Clinton were president now and we were in the midst of this coronavirus, what do you think the chances are that Mitch McConnell, where he's Senate Majority Leader, would sit down with Clinton, uh, with Chuck Schumer, if he were the leader, with others, to put together a $2 trillion package to help out the country? Um, or that Kevin McCarthy, as the Republican leader in the House, would join uh, in uh, trying to make this a reality? And my answer to that is the uh, likelihood of that happening is close to zero. Uh, so we're still in the midst of dysfunction. It's just that periodically uh, we are going to get a different response and a bipartisan one, but it's simply because uh, we happen to have a unique set of circumstances now, or at least a different set of circumstances, a Republican president and a Senate majority that's trying to cling to its own majority and protect that president. So I wish I could be more positive and optimistic, but I'm not. That's a realistic or maybe a cynical uh, read. Um, but when we look back over time uh, to world wars and the country has faced catastrophic um, threats, we have seen uh, both parties come together and there are differences as designed, um, but there has been uh, quite a bit of work. Don't you think faced with the prospect of uh, potentially 30% unemployment, the steepest drop in GDP in uh, American history, that uh, Democrats and Republicans in Congress would have come together, even if there was a Democrat in the White House? I think ultimately they would have come together on a package. I don't think it would have been the same package that we got. And my guess is that the package would have tilted much more heavily towards uh, industries that uh, and uh, billionaires uh, than it did towards providing some protection for uh, average people and with fewer checks and balances uh, in place. Uh, so yeah, we would have seen some action. And I would add, uh, given where we are and given where we're likely to be, we're gonna see a different dynamic as well, I think a month or two or three down the road because the states that have lagged behind in doing social distancing, uh, that in fact have defied any calls to do so are red states. And the areas that are gonna suffer the most, and I would add suffer in particular because uh, states that refuse the Medicaid expansion, in every instance for partisan political purposes, have had the funding cut for rural hospitals. Those rural areas 
uh, which don't have the capacity are gonna get hit very, very hard. We may see a different attitude. And it's true that if there were a Democratic president and all of a sudden red states were suffering, we would see it handled differently. I'll take you back to another example. Uh, Hurricane Sandy uh, hit and devastated the Northeast, New York and New Jersey in particular. Barack Obama stepped up and we remember that famous scene of Chris Christie hugging Barack Obama, which ended up probably doing more to damage his uh, presidential prospects than anything else. And members of the House, Republicans from red states, refused to vote for any federal disaster assistance for those states. Months later, devastating hurricanes hit Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and those same members were crying out for federal aid. So of course they protect their own, yeah. but it's done through a, a, a tribal lens that's different from what we would have seen 20 years ago or even before. Now, as, you, as we're talking about, the intervention by Washington is extraordinary, over $2 trillion uh, passed last week, uh, record. Um, and before that, there were several uh, bills. We're looking at a fourth uh, bill coming up. There's a disagreement about how large and what uh, will be part of it and when and all that, but it looks like something, you know, will be more action from Congress. You're at the American Enterprise Institute and you're someone I would describe as a, as a, an honest broker. You kind of follow the research and the data. Do you worry that what the government is doing may become part of the problem? Of course. And, you know, one of the things that's really concerned me going back a couple of years, when this giant tax cut was being debated, and it was very clear to the widest range of objective experts that the tax cut was not going to result in some dramatic surge in investment, that companies had actually made it pretty clear that they were going to use the money for stock buybacks to raise their stock prices and give more money to their executives, that uh, this was not going to result in some dramatic improvement in revenues and pay for itself or come close, that doing this kind of bill at a time of full employment and economic growth, pro-cyclical as opposed to counter-cyclical policies, was going to lead to enormous deficits and debt, which would mean that when we hit a difficult problem, it would be more troubling because what you would need to either provide a stimulus or in this case a recovery was going to make that debt spiral. The good news is interest rates are low, so borrowing now isn't going to be nearly as costly. But once we get into this, it's hard to get out of it. And we're gonna need possibly several more recovery packages. And the recovery packages that we've done are uh, spotty and inaccurate uh, or incomplete in other ways. One of the things, for example, they took care of mortgage holders in the sense of you know, not allowing foreclosures and letting people defer mortgage payments, but not the same for renters. And so while we're not gonna see people evicted right now, most likely, it's gonna create real problems there. You have to start patching in different ways. And whether Congress is adept enough to do this uh, is a, a real question. And working with an administration that uh, doesn't have uh, necessarily the best and brightest people to be able to carve out the ways of doing this, knowing some of the other things that we've seen, 
you know, a, an astonishing story today that an administration official reached out to Thailand to ask if they had any surplus protective gear and, uh, and ventilators. And what they heard from the Thai officials was, well, this puzzles us very much because you sent a shipment of that equipment to Thailand and it's on its way right now. Uh, you know, it reminds me of that old line of uh, Ronald Reagan joking about his administration. Sometimes in my White House, the right hand doesn't know what the far right hand is doing. Uh, and in this case, it's clear that they don't have the appropriate coordination. So you put all of that together and you worry about how well we'll be able to come out of this and what happens in the future. You're, you're, you're a student of um, the way in which the government operates, the executive branch, Congress, um, and you just ticked off one example of a longstanding problem. Lack of coordination, um, divided lines of authority, these are not new uh, developments. Just looking from afar um, or up close uh, at what you're seeing so far in the government's response or lack of response to the coronavirus, do you see generic themes that you would have seen if Barack Obama was president now or George W. Bush? Are there kind of characteristics of our government that are now apparent? Uh, certainly, there are some areas of this where we would not have been prepared no matter who was president. And that reflects, uh, I suppose you could even almost call it human nature as well. You uh, often don't prepare for something that might happen down the road because you have a short-term focus, or in some cases, because you might be a little superstitious uh, about uh, bringing on the next crisis. Uh, you don't wanna spend a lot of money now that won't be used right away because you won't get credit for it and people are gonna say, why are you doing this when we've got these immediate needs? Those are chronic issues. And so I don't believe, for example, that anybody would have foreseen three years ago or five years ago that the next pandemic would require an enormous uh, stockpile of ventilators. But at the same time, here's what we know. We know that the Obama administration, thanks in part to Ron Klain, who handled it, dealt with the Ebola outbreak, which could have been an absolute devastation, adeptly, and also made sure that they had money given to countries where outbreaks could occur that could then spread around the rest of uh, the world. We know that they set up a pandemic task force unit within the National Security Council for rapid response. We know that they did a tabletop exercise after the uh, last uh, presidential election before the inaugural to prepare people uh, in the incoming Trump administration for this. And they did a handbook uh, to help prepare. The handbook was thrown out. The tabletop was disregarded. The task force was disbanded. And when we had warning signs in December and January, and we have documentary evidence of this, Democrats in the House and Senate, Chris Murphy, Senator from Connecticut among them, writing letters to top officials in the National Security Council, the Department of Health and Human Services, the Centers for Disease Control, saying, hey, we've got this terrible pandemic, it's gonna come over here, what are you doing about it? We're disregarded. Now, any administration, can you know shrug off 
sort of the sky is falling kinds of things. We know that the George W. Bush administration did it when National Security uh, Council expert Richard Clark told them that uh, there was going to be uh, an attack uh, that might involve airplanes. And uh, Condoleezza Rice said, uh, you know, didn't push it up to the next level. That can happen anywhere. But in this case, the disregard knowing history and knowing what was happening is unprecedented. And it's a reflection not just on President Trump, but on a lot of the people around him in the National Security Council, from Alex Azar on down in the Department of Health and Human Services, in the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, and across the board. We have a group of people, and I hope we're going to get a 9-11 style commission next year that will look into this, point the blame where it's deserved for the delays, because those delays have demonstrably caused more deaths than we would have otherwise, but also tries to give us a better framework for the next time. I mean, just to take one dimension of um, uh, the problems we face now, particularly in the area of testing, there's been so many report, reports about this, but it stems in the first order from the uh, Centers for Disease Control, which uh, tried to develop kind of a first world uh, top of the line uh, test. It turned out to be flawed. Um, it took them a while to come to that realization, but the natural inclination, the dynamics of a bureau, which is to control their uh, domain, to protect their turf, and to exercise their authority was in full display. And that wasn't you know, a result of the Trump administration uh, in the first order. Uh, that was a result of something you and I have seen and studied for a long time, which is the, um, the really the, the stodgy, uh, conservative, insular, turf-protecting bureaucracy. Isn't that also part of the issue here? You're absolutely right. And I could not say with any level of certainty that in another administration with another head of the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, with another head of the FDA, that we would necessarily have handled it differently. Although I do think some of the flaws in the execution of that test that they were doing were because of people in the administration. Where, uh, so certainly this is a bureaucratic uh, imperative almost that we see in so many places. But I think there's another phenomenon going on here. And we've seen this with the progression of statements made by President Trump. And in part, one of the things that he said in the briefing, uh, the rally slash press conference yesterday, uh, when asked about this, well, I don't like to give bad news. That's not my business to give bad news. I want to give people good news and hope. This sense that if we do more testing, it's gonna show more cases. If we show more cases, it's gonna look bad for us. It's gonna have an impact on the stock market and how people feel about me. That was a message sent throughout the administration and it added onto it, amplified in a sense, that normal bureaucratic imperative. I can also tell you that if you look at some of the things that were said by my previous and now colleague, Scott Gottlieb, who was the head of the FDA uh, until recently in the Trump administration and is maybe the only one who left 
with his reputation enhanced rather than degraded. Scott was on top of this early on, saw that this was gonna be catastrophic. And I actually believe that if Scott Gottlieb had been the head of the FDA um, in January and February, we would be in a different place now. He would have seen the urgency and would have been right on top of the company preparing those tests and would have seen if they weren't working that we needed to triage by bringing in the WHO test that 65 other countries have used. Right. So we've been kind of looking at the ways in which the bureaucracy um, may have played a role in um, the lack of preparation for yeah. uh, testing and maybe some other areas. Uh, let's flip that around. Um, one of the positives of a well-organized agency is that it does have a set of well-defined uh, rules. It's got a clear mission, again, when it's set up well. And the FDA could be an example of that. You know, thinking forward, the FDA has been hesitant until President Trump uh, engaged in approving and encouraging the use of uh, medications and drugs that have consequences and repercussions uh, off-label. That is, there is not hard yeah. scientific evidence uh, supporting it at this point. Do you think the the emergency of the coronavirus and the the um, the imperative to do something overrides the cautiousness of the FDA uh, when you have ideas kind of cropping up and a president you know, going public and saying, I want this approved, we've got to do something. How do you evaluate that? So we know that the FDA actually has done this in the case of one drug uh, that Gilead, the pharmaceutical company in California, has come up with that seems to work. And they're using it in cases of people who are on respirators, although it's a limited supply. The other that President Trump has been touting over and over again, chloroquine and uh, another anti-malarial drug, we know a couple of things. The first is that we've had some people who've rushed to use variations of this, and at least one person's died as a consequence of that. We also know that uh, this drug, which is extremely important for people who have lupus, a very serious autoimmune disease, is now unavailable to many of them because people are stockpiling it just in case. So you have to strike a balance here. That balance was not well struck by the FDA for a very long time. You probably know people, as I do, who've had things like stage four pancreatic cancer. They're not going to survive. And the idea that you would deny them experimental treatments uh, because it might kill them when they're going to die anyhow, you don't want to do things like that. But in a case like this, where there's potential panic among 300 million Americans and a drug that may have serious side effects and where it's not clear that you can pull people out of it miraculously if they're at the uh, dire stages, you wanna spend at least some time, even if it's doing small numbers of trials to make sure that you don't have those side effects. It turns out that some of those small trials may have been manipulated by scientists. Uh, so it's a question of what kind of balance you have and then whether you trust the people in charge uh, to uh, be able to strike that balance. Yeah, I think this is a very um, um, troubling area and um, neither of us have a crystal ball, but we have been around the block a few times and 
when medications have been rushed into uh, public use, um, sometimes from political intervention. We have seen unfortunate uh, side effects, but as you say, we are facing extraordinary uh, choices about life and death. Um, Norm, I wanna uh, float in here a few, uh, some of the questions. I've been doing it, but I wanna pick up on a question um, that has been raised which is that uh, 2008, um, you use 2008 as a comparison point, but um, the questioner says, well, that's really not the same thing. Um, 2008 was caused by uh, gamblers on Wall Street who um, had agreed, uh, ended up blowing up our financial system. Today, the situation is uh, a disaster of a viral nature that has uh, swept the country through no fault of any American. And so Republicans are responding to that. Um, do you see the nature of the threat um, or threats between 2008 and today maybe accounting for the Republican Party's shift in attitude towards the size and scope of the stimulus? Uh, I, I don't really. Uh, there are differences, of course, and certainly um, the uh, potential that can exist of millions of people dying, of hospitals uh, incapable of coping, of uh, workers in those hospitals, the vital health officials that we have uh, either dying or becoming unavailable, um, that's a, a different scope than an economic crisis. But the fact is, we had a global financial meltdown in 2008. It doesn't matter what the causes were uh, in some ways. Uh, the aftermath of it, um, what you do about those causes, we also saw a sharp uh, partisan difference where we know that financial actors were the miscreants here uh, and we created the uh, uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to try and deal with that and the Dodd-Frank legislation and Republicans have spent an enormous amount of time trying to blow up the uh, consumer protections and mm -hmm. uh, the regulations to keep this from happening again. But at the same time, we know that if action were not taken in 2008, um, we could have ended up with a global depression that would have made the 1930s look mild by comparison. And here, even though Republicans in the House rejected the package, a package that had been put together by George W. Bush as Treasury Secretary, Hank Paulson, the chairman of the Fed, Ben Bernanke, and endorsed by all the congressional leaders and by the two presidential candidates, that it ultimately was accepted in a broad bipartisan way. But it was accepted when there was a Republican president. Yeah, But do you yeah. think it's the nature of the threat that helps to account or plays into uh, the different responses of Republicans? Is it, is it simply there's a Republican in the White House and, and then with Obama there was a Democrat? Or is it, you know, here we've got something that is, as you mentioned at the beginning, will almost certainly affect every state, red and blue. And yeah. there's just the sense of we are all in this together. We are all at threat, in threat of, of being infected. Uh, I don't think we would have seen nothing happen if Hillary Clinton were president. Right. What we would have seen happen would have been very different, would have taken more time, would have been significantly diluted, 
and would have tilted in a different direction. And uh, that, to me, is not what should happen. Um, when you're all in it together, you want to work together to make sure that you have the most uh, comprehensive uh, and meaningful approach. And I think it would have been seen through a different filter if we had a Clinton presidency compared to uh, a Trump presidency. Ask you about um, some of the missing in action uh, parts of the government. Yeah. Uh, Department of Homeland Security, um, doesn't that have responsibility for managing disaster um, of you know wide range, obviously a national security disaster in the form of a terrorist attack, but isn't its ambit much larger? They seem to be completely invisible at this point. Does that, does that surprise you a little? It has surprised me. Um, FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Administration, uh, has the knowledge and the wherewithal to deal with all different types of disasters. And that includes getting vital equipment uh, distributed to the places most in need. FEMA was not even involved at all until about a week ago. Uh, but just as significantly, what FEMA's been doing now is going out onto the open market to buy uh, the PPEs, the personal protective equipment, the ventilators, uh, and uh, other materials, and they're bidding against the governors in the states. So they're bringing the prices up and taking them away from the governors who are trying to use it uh, most efficiently. Uh, this is you know, the term I've used since the beginning of the Trump presidency, uh, that's an old word that uh, goes back to the 17th century, now resurrected, cacistocracy, government by the worst and most unscrupulous and incompetent among us. And you do things like this, the sending gear to Thailand. We sent an enormous amount to China when they first started uh, that, uh, you know, uh, isn't being discussed very much. Um, we have not prepared and we're not dealing with it well. Of course, the other part of Homeland Security is the uh, Border Patrol and ICE have been trying to hold on to a sizable number of the N95 masks so that they can use them when they round up people to deport them in the middle of a pandemic. They've tried to refuse uh, any equipment or treatment to people who are here in an undocumented fashion not understanding that if anybody contracts this virus and isn't giving any protection, that they're gonna spread it to others. So, you know, the, some of the responses here just defy rational behavior or belief. And some of it simply reflects incompetence. Uh, keeping in mind what we've been talking about, that the, there are certain issues or problems, um, uh, mistakes, that are unique to this president and his administration. There's some that are characteristic of the government and the way in which our government responds. Looking back over you know, the last uh, half century, is there a president you think who would have done a better job and would have had a qualitatively different outcome? Or is this such a, a sweeping disaster that the differences are gonna be in the margins, understanding that the margins are a matter of life and death. I actually believe that uh, a, a number of the presidents in the last 50 years would have handled this better. I believe Ronald Reagan would have handled it better. I believe George Herbert Walker Bush would have handled it better. 
I believe Jimmy Carter would have handled it better. I uh, am certain that Barack Obama would have handled it better based on the experience that we had uh, with uh, Ebola and some of the other catastrophes uh, that emerged. There are Democrats and Republicans who had competent people. Now, it's true that with George W. Bush, uh, the response to Katrina was cringeworthy. Um, but in other places, uh, the focus was on getting good people in place. And it was getting good people in place who had some experience in the areas that they were dealing with. Um, and the focus was on making sure we limit the casualties and deal with it in the best possible way. You know, if you look at the turnover rate in this presidency, uh, in the White House and in uh, cabinet departments and agencies, um, which is dramatically greater than any other presidents, the number of posts that have never been filled, the fact that we now have a personnel director who's 29 years old and has no experience in that area and his deputy is a college student, that what they're looking for is loyalty to the president, not competency in the jobs. That's different from every previous president in the last 50 years. And just, and just, to, just to kind of fill that out, you and I have seen organization charts where it has the, the different levels of appointed officials and some that are, are just part of the civil service. And it's, there are lots of blanks. Um, and it started off with lots of blanks, which is not uncommon with a new administration, but the blanks have remained or they were filled and now they, they're not people in those positions. And then the second issue is who's actually being appointed. And we've, we know yeah. of cases of highly competent people. Um, uh, though I think we both agree that the, um, the folks who are at CDC right now are some of the best in the country and uh, well-respected uh, internationally. Uh, there's no doubt that we have a number of people, the career people, uh, who are actually uh, struggling with a major dilemma. We see this every day with these uh, Ballyhood conferences where uh, Deborah Burks and uh, Tony Fauci are prominent players, and they have to make sure that they temper what they say while the president is there uh, to keep from being seen as disloyal. We also know that uh, Anthony Fauci, who's been particularly candid, is now the target of vicious attacks by uh, people on the right, uh, ostensibly supporting President Trump, uh, that he is a mole inside who's actually working with Hillary Clinton to undermine President Trump. This is a tough uh, place to be. It's never easy to be inside and trying to do your job. We know, Larry, you and I, that every administration ends up looking at some of the career people uh, suspiciously because they've done the right thing, which is they carry out the policies of whatever administration had preceded uh, the one coming in. Right. There's always that balance that's difficult to strike. But in this case, uh, and I would say, uh, I, I was a, a critic of the Obama administration, which did not do well early on in the personnel field, didn't fill a lot of positions. And it's not just filling the cabinet and the immediate sub-cabinet. You need to do the next two levels down because when people move on, you need to have somebody ready to move in who knows what they're doing and has experience. And in this case, though, 
what we have is something dramatically different and worse than we saw with George W. Bush or Barack Obama. And I want to just uh, uh, pause here because uh, I'm reading the questions folks are sending in and there's a concern that's been expressed a few times about uh, whether this is a partisan conversation. And um, you and I have talked uh, going back to H.W. Bush's uh, presidency. Um, and every time that we've had a conversation, it's had a bit of this tone of analysis and criticism, whether it was Clinton, uh, W. Bush, Obama, um, and now uh, Trump. What you were saying about Trump, uh, I would say has more intensity and obviously um, the stakes are just couldn't be higher. But the criticism of, of a president based on understanding how government works and the political dynamics in Congress, that's not partisan. Um, but what do you think? No, I, I agree. And you know, if I go back uh, over my career in dealing with politics and government uh, over five decades, um, I worked for much of that time, most of that time, as closely with Republicans as I did with Democrats. I worked with Bill Frenzel. Uh, I worked with Rudy Boschwitz. I worked with Dave Dernberger. John and McCain. I worked with Barbara John McCain, John McCain Orrin Hatch. Um, a, a very long list, Bill Gratison, uh, people who were deeply engaged in the policy arena and cared deeply with Olympia Snow and many, many others, Fred Thompson. The list is as long as it is the list I did uh, work with with Democrats. But we're in a different world now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I will tell you that at one point, um, Right after Barack Obama got elected, I wrote a piece in the New York Times praising George W. Bush because I had gone to his chief of staff, Josh Bolton, um, well before the 2008 election and said, let's make this the best transition in the history of the country, whoever gets elected. And George W. Bush enthusiastically signed on and they did a superb job because they put the country first just as his father had put the country first. And I got a lot of flack from the left for doing yeah. that. Um, this has little to do with partisanship, but it is a reality that the Republican Party today is a dramatically different party than the one that you and I knew and yeah. worked with over many decades. Uh, and I think it's something that even uh, conservatives like uh, Vin Weber uh, would acknowledge right now. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you for that. I want to shift to another topic. You have been uh, writing for several decades now about your concerns about the uh, stability of our government in the face of crisis, whether it's um, a terrorist attack, whether it's a, um, a, a public health threat, whether it's anthrax or now the coronavirus. And the question that you've asked is, can our government continue to operate in the face of a catastrophic event? And the answer is no. And that's true for all three branches. And it became uh, particularly and starkly evident in the aftermath of 9-11. We don't want to be in a situation, especially in the midst of a crisis, whether it's a terrorist attack or a natural disaster or a pandemic or whatever else it might be, where we can't count on the three branches being there and working 
and making sure we have those checks and balances in place. And I started doing this in uh, earnest in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. We created a commission uh, on the continuity of government, co-chaired by the late Lloyd Cutler, who was a White House counsel under two presidents, and former Senator Alan Simpson of Wyoming, another one I've worked closely with uh, many things and who's one of my heroes in public service. And we tried to get Congress to do something to create emergency interim appointments in the event that an attack wiped out a majority of the members, because you can't operate if you don't have a quorum of half the members, uh, to create uh, emergency interim appointments for those who are incapacitated uh, because the Senate can't operate uh, without that quorum. And uh, the anthrax scare made that apparent. But also the Presidential Succession Act of 1947 is inadequate for the task. And the Supreme Court has no plan if they fall below the statutory quorum of six. And you don't want to be in a position where vital issues, uh, including a presidential succession, uh, that you don't have a court who can make sure that it's being done the right way. And, and we still not have nothing. And the part about uh, your crusade, and you usually have two or three going, and they're always important. And, um, you know, I follow them uh, avidly. And I have to admit, I, I don't understand why there's been, you know, such a, a non-response. Yeah. This is not partisan. This is not about giving, uh, you know, one party an advantage. It's simply, will our constitutional form of government be able to continue? And today, I mean, literally last week, the House is trying to vote and pass on the uh, stimulus package uh, that is so needed that both parties support. Um, and members um, are struggling to get to Washington without getting ill. Um, did, did this vote itself uh, pass the quorum requirement? You know, the answer to that is we don't exactly know uh, because if you looked on the House floor, it didn't look like there were anywhere close to a majority of uh, the members. Uh, uh, you know, you require 218 in a full body, 216 in this case. Um, there were some in the galleries, um, but they kind of slid by it by uh, announcing that a quorum was present and not uh, actually having a vote on that. Um, part, of, part of your argument, as I understand it, is it's both, you know, if the president or a certain number of senators or members of Congress are killed, <coughs> how do we replace them? Yes. But there's also the argument that we need to have procedures in place to run the government remotely yeah. so that we don't have members of Congress uh, who are spreading the illness uh, among their colleagues. Exactly so. This is a different kind of threat now. Um, and now we have members scattered all across the country, including, of course, in Alaska and Hawaii. We have airlines that could well shut down all domestic air travel. We have the possibility of a Congress which has uh, a very old population in general, and which has people who for a long time were out shaking hands and in close quarters. You have a situation where even if they got back to Washington, you don't want them huddled together without maintaining that six foot separation. So there are so many possibilities that could occur of a nightmare where you need emergency action, including appropriations that only Congress can do, where you don't have a Congress. And I've tried now for months 
to get them to do a provision that would only be triggered in an emergency. We don't want to have a full-time remote Congress. You want them there as often as possible debating and deliberating face-to-face. -face. But in dire circumstances where you could meet remotely, we have the technology for it, where you can vote remotely, you can make it secure, and not leave actions up to a president. And I don't care who the president is, I don't want presidents acting by fiat without the lawful and appropriate actions and check and balance by a Congress. And the inability or refusal to do so up to this point is pretty damn frustrating. Let me uh, shift gears because we only have about a bit more than 10 minutes left. Um, you are obviously following the um, Democratic presidential nomination. Where is Joe Biden? So Biden, I, I think he and his team made the decision that they don't want to be out there doing a, say, a dueling conference with Donald Trump and actually uh, competing with uh, Andrew Cuomo right now as well. They've been doing things on the web and Biden now is getting out more and doing television interviews. Um, I think it's based on a judgment that uh, once the nomination struggle is over, and it's effectively over, but uh, Bernie Sanders remains in this race, and many of the primaries that we've been expecting that would actually put Biden over the top are going to be postponed or maybe even scuttled, um, that being out there every day isn't necessarily going to meet his interests, and that once he's the nominee, he will be uh, out front and central on all of this. But I do think there's a price that they've paid for it. And what I'd recommended publicly was that Biden do a briefing every day, but not one where he's the one running it, where he turns it over to the people he would have in his administration dealing with this kind of a crisis. So you do a briefing every day where the people who come forward are Ron Klain, who ran the Ebola response, Andy Sabat, that Minnesotan who's becoming a prominent figure, who was the head of uh, CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, at, for a point in the Obama administration. Uh, Sylvia Burwell, uh, who was the secretary of HHS, and a number of others. And in a, in a sense, what you're doing is you're showing what your administration would be like for the next pandemic. So it sounds like what you're saying is that uh, Joe Biden is, uh, you know, kind of pursuing a uh, an odd form of the Rose Garden strategy of just staying yeah. cocooned at a moment when he needs to find a way to become more part of the, the conversation. Yeah, and I, I also think there's a delicate balance here. Andrew Cuomo is uh, acting right now in his official governmental capacity, not as a Democrat uh, doing the counterpoint to Donald Trump, although Trump is not real happy at, at Cuomo's popularity and the way in which he's handling it. Joe Biden is not an official figure. And you want to be careful here that this does not become a partisan issue. So at the same time, we're seeing all kinds of ads that are, you know, really slamming Trump for the uh, change in posture. Not a problem at all. We'll be down to one case and zero before very long. Go about your business. Everything's fine. 
but whether that's a good thing to do right now when we're all trying to unite together to uh, basically solve the problem and end the war um, is another open question. Yeah, uh, that's a, that's an important. Himself and this is a dangerous thing. Yeah, that's an important um, nuance. Um, so when does the democratic nomination process conclude? Um, you know, if we didn't have the coronavirus, uh, Joe Biden would have the majority and in all likelihood, you know, either Bernie Sanders would have stepped down or we wouldn't even be talking about him. But of course, that hasn't happened and things feel kind of stillborn. Um, do you feel like Biden's grasp on the nomination could be um, under threat? There's some people talking about Cuomo as a replacement? Do you think this just drags on and on and on uh, straight up till July? How does this play out? We're in uncharted territory here. And of course, that includes the possibility that we won't be able to have physical conventions, that they would have to do a uh, remote convention. Um, the fact that um, a nomination struggle that would be formally close to being over right now and over very soon and won't be is uh, not a good thing for Joe Biden or for Democrats. Uh, just as troubling is that Bernie Sanders, who can't win a nomination, even now, uh, the uh, support that he has, we see is barely a third of Democrats and it's not gonna go up from there. And in fact, it's gone down a little bit. Um, and his uh, campaign theme built around I'm gonna bring about a revolution by having all these young people turn out in unimaginable numbers where the turnout was lower than we would have expected in most of these earlier states. Um, clear he's not a nominee, but staying in it complicates matters for Democrats and complicates matters for Biden. And you know, stuff can happen over the next couple of months. So we don't know, but it's not um, a, uh, a, a set of good signs. Uh, right. You know, at the same time, it's important to say, we don't know what our world is going to look like in May or June, much less in the fall when we have a, a full campaign uh, ostensibly in place. And we might be better off in the summer and then see a resurgence of this uh, virus in the fall. Uh, this is not something we've seen in our lifetimes. That's for sure. Um, there are lots of other topics, and I hope you'll come back and join us. But um, before we run out of time, I want to talk about a topic that you have made, um, uh, you know, really put a lot of effort into, and I know you have, uh, you know, a personal stake in it, which is mental health. And it's one of the resurgent themes now uh, with coronavirus. I think we're all feeling, um, you know, an enormous stress and anxiety, and people who have underlying mental health issues are really at risk at this moment. Um, what is your thinking about the mental health component of the coronavirus and how do you think we should be uh, approaching this? So there, there are multiple strands here. First is the uh, mental health issues are going to expand dramatically over the next month or two. The, the pressure, the social isolation, the guilt that people are going to feel as their loved ones die and they're not even able to be with them or to see them, um, the amount of anxiety, depression, and other mental illness, that's something, and I'm hoping we're going to have therapists do 
remote sessions and find ways of coping there. There's an immediate issue because the most vulnerable populations among us are the seriously mentally ill who have no insight into their own diseases, many of whom are getting the coronavirus and can't treat, uh, don't even recognize that they may have it and could spread it as well. The homeless populations that have no social distancing and no access to uh, protective care or sanitation. The prison populations that we're starting to see, 40% of those in our prisons have a mental illness, 25% a serious mental illness, and they're in big trouble. Um, we need to find ways to help them. The community mental health centers in many places are shuttered now because the workers won't go in, they don't have protective gear, and people who count on those if they're in a crisis or if they're just going to get medications, can't get them. So there's all of that. But these broader issues that come up that are heightened because of the pandemic need to be dealt with in a bigger way. And here I can mention that having lost my son five years ago after a 10-year struggle with serious mental illness um, and a system that was broken and couldn't help at all, we had, as a family, had influence and resources no matter how well-to-do you are, how well-connected you are, um, this is an illness that can strike anybody and it often ends in tragedy as ours did. We've created this foundation in his memory, the Matthew Harris Ornstein Memorial Foundation. And we have now the next big project, April 14th, mark your calendars, 10 p.m. Eastern, uh, check your local listings on PBS, we have done a documentary called The Definition of Insanity about uh, uh, this remarkable judge in Miami-Dade County, Florida, who's transformed the way the criminal justice system deals with issues uh, of people with a serious mental illness and saved lives and saved money. And then we're gonna take it around the country. And when we can finally travel, we're gonna bring it to Minneapolis and bring together stakeholders to try and uh, change the system and change the policies. And what Lifeman has done is he's found ways to save lives and save money. And that's one component uh, that we're pursuing. And we can do that in Minneapolis uh, and in the Twin Cities and elsewhere around the country and make it work better so that other families don't suffer the pain and the tragedies that we have or the difficulty my son had in a 10 year struggle um, with what we call stage four brain disease um, because it's uh, uh, the brain is an organ like other organs and when disease hits it we're, we don't treat it the same way and we should. Norm you are a niche um, and the work you've done on this I know how anguished um, you have you and your family have been over this the tragedy you experienced yes. and it is beyond admirable how you've channeled um, that anguish into very positive um, and constructive steps. You've talked just a little bit. There's a lot more that you've been working on. And I would highly recommend uh, this documentary if you can watch it, put on your calendars. If you're looking for something uplifting, this is a really great story about how a judge um, you know, opened his eyes to what was going on and realized what he had been told isn't really what was going on, that he needed to see deeper and see in a different way. Um, it's really an enormous accomplishment to have that out there. And Norm Ornstein, I want to thank you so much for joining us.